Laboratori! Ragazzi, mi si smonta tutto. Prima non si fa più. Due giorni qua non ci deve essere più niente. Bisogna cominciare subito. Coraggio al lavoro, buttate giù. Dico bene, dottore? Sì, grazie. Arrivederci, ragazzi. Ci vediamo in un prossimo video. Lo speriamo. Welcome to Cinema Italia, a podcast dedicated to the world of Italian cinema. Presented by me, John Bleasdale. to Italian cinema I don't consider myself any kind of expert on Italian cinema I feel very all at sea but of course the silent era is very different and one of the reasons that the silent era is different for me um, is that you know I'm aware that they dominated this period you know the, the first real feature film Cabrera in 1914 the diva films which we're going to talk about but also much more personally I go to two major film festivals every year where I see a lot of silent film. And one of them is Il Cinema Ritrovato in Bologna. And the other one is the most prestigious silent film festival in the world, which is in Pordenone, northern Italy. And so, uh, yes, there is a certain bias towards Italian silent cinema there. But also my understanding of silent cinema is entirely infused with, uh, I don't know, the sort of center gelato. And so I, uh, I, can, I can't really distinguish the two things in my mind. Um, so yeah, I, I apologize for anyone who, uh, if I say something that is ignorant about later Italian silent cinema, um, you know, I studied neorealism at college, but you know, this this is really, I'm very much an early girl in this situation. <laughs> Yeah, but that's that's your area of expertise, and that's exactly what I want because I'm 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 kind of the other way around. In fact, I've got a feeling that the film that you suggested we watch, uh, Assunta Spina, is is maybe the first Italian silent film I've seen. Wow! I know. No, I mean that might not be true, but I'm pretty. Yeah, it, it's it's not. There are not many that I've seen. Put it that way. I mean, I'm interested. Like you know, a who obviously does know Italian cinema. Uh, had you heard of it did you know of it did you think oh this is probably what i'll pick or no no not at all uh, no i'm uh, my well, to, to be very uh frank my the reason for doing this co- podcast is primarily because i don't know a lot about italian cinema and it's embarrassing to, to live in a country and not and not be as au fait with the with the cinema as i should be i think i probably know french cinema a bit better than than Italian cinema. So this is this is partly uh I'm gonna get a private film course on the cheap by just getting everybody to explain it to me. And so tell me about Italian silent cinema. I mean, even the fact that the first thing you said there, which is how important Italian uh the Italian film industry was to the development of silent cinema, even that sort of comes as a little bit of news for me. So I mean if we're talking about the sort of 1910s, you know, uh, this is a period where Italian cinema French cinema and Danish cinema perhaps are sort of dominating the world market. Now, obviously what happens during the war is that F1 in Europe gets a bit distracted and America steals a march on F1 else. But 
up till this period, if you were any kind of cinephile, you would have to know Italian cinema. And for example, I mean, uh, people often get this wrong, this fact wrong, but the very first film to be screened at the White House was not that racist American film. It was Cabiria from 1914. And the the Italian film industry at this point was in one of its many very ambitious periods, as far as I'm aware. Uh, you know, we're talking about making monumental films with that sort of based on mythology, based on um, great classics of literature. Uh, you know, the, the actress that we're going to talk about today, she was in a, she was Cordelia in a fantastic version of King Lear from 1910. Really, really one of the sort of my favourite Italian silent films. So, you know, this is an industry that has uh, great ambitions, um, great cinematic innovations and also a lot of ties to literature and drama and theatre. The thing I love about what you just said is um, everyone gets a bit distracted. That's That's got to be one of the best descriptions of the Great War. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, but, you know, I mean, I'm being flippant in many ways, but I mean, it really is just a matter of like, it was of, of, of sort of national importance to these industries, you know, that that you know you could see French or Danish or Italian films all around the world and it felt important and obviously somehow it didn't feel very important when you know there was a lack of resources and staff and personnel and great human tragedy unfolding so you know and this is when because I mean I think it's very easy to imagine that America always dominated uh, and it wasn't true it wasn't true we're gonna like delve into the European origins of great cinema and I just that's quite exciting. You mentioned Kabiria, and that, to tell you the truth, that's one film that it, that I've heard a lot about, and I know that uh, Gabriel D'Annunzio, the uh, sort of famous novelist and sort of proto-fascist, uh, wrote the intertitles for. That was the that was the one that I was thinking. Ah, I bet she picks that one. I suppose I thought maybe someone uh, else would pick it, or it's just such a big film. I was finding it quite exhausting to talk about. Um, I I chose Asuntaspina because I thought um, it linked into lots of other interesting things. It wasn't such a kind of dominating film in that way, but I think it's really key. And to me, it's got a lot to do with a lot of the following Italian silent films that I do watch. You know, um, I think it actually looks forward more to how Italian cinema develops over the silent era in my sort of limited understanding of that rather than being this one-off monumental epic and I've never been much of a fan of see now ideally I'm going to organize this conversation so you pronounce all the Italian but I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the Machiste films and I just again I'm probably pronouncing everything so horribly but you know so uh, I'm more of a diva than a Machiste that's I mean as you can tell obviously from everything about me so I thought we'd get into the divas Yes, yes. Well, let's do that because uh, uh, again, that is that is a subgenre of uh, Italian silent cinema, and and I'm assuming Asunta Spina is like a, a, an exemplar of these films. Is that right? It, it is indeed. So when you think of sort of the the diva drama, uh, you sort of have to think of like the model of Aston Nielsen in Denmark making Afgrunden and and going into um, Weimar Germany and, and doing more of that sort of thing. It's the erotic melodrama with this intense brooding um, star, a very powerful star at the heart of the film female star and a sense of a particular kind of acting that's somewhere between theatre and naturalism. Uh, and um, I mean, there's so many links. I mean, Francesca Bertini, who stars in Santa Spina, actually remade more or less one of Augusta Nielsen's films. But that is the that is the idea. You have these women who are stars, actors, probably producers, probably co-directors and writers as well. And that the entire film is almost a frame for their talents. 
and and she's not only yeah well exactly what you say there she's she's also sort of credited with being a director on this film a co-director i should say well yeah i mean it's really interesting so um sort of you know it's a great vehicle for her to to play the lead in the Santa and she's down as producing the film and come up with many of the creative decisions she later claimed to be the co-director and actually the co-star one of her co-stars and the guy who's meant to be the director both said no no she basically directed it all i mean it's complicated because we have such a well quite set idea of what a director does and what they do on set and it might look quite different if you are working with a fixed camera if you're working with a stage that's deep deeply staged the blocking's worked out in advance if you're also obviously working in front of the camera when the when the scenes are rolling so you know for example it might not look what like what we think of directing looks like but who's making the decisions about the mise-en-scene who's making the decisions about the locations and the settings and I mean, she's talked very um, passionately. If you ever find footage of Francesca Bertini talking later in life, it's, it's incredibly good value uh, about how she chose the settings for this film and how she thinks that she basically invented neorealism uh, in 1915. And, you know, there's a, it's, it's not as tenuous an argument as it might be, it seems. No, actually, I mean, I was totally, uh, as I was watching it, I was, you know, almost inevitably thinking about, oh, this this seems to be, well, I mean, maybe if we started talking about the the story a little bit, that sort of gives gives a sense, because the story is, uh, also reminded me of a sort of noirish beginnings of um, neorealism with Ossessione, you know, this uh, sort of a love, tri- a fatal love triangle. Could you, could you give us a sort of synopsis for those who haven't seen the film yet. So Asunta Spina is a young woman who lives in uh, lives near Naples and she's in love with a man who's a butcher, a, a violent man. I think they're engaged. Uh, she has an ex-boyfriend who's on the scene. He's trying to to make trouble. So she moves to Naples to work in, I think, you know, work in the laundry, be close to her man. And yet, and yet this guy just won't leave them alone. And uh, this provokes her boyfriend's violent rage and he he, he attacks her with a knife. Now what happens next? <laughs> <laughs> it's not particularly palatable, not that that's uh, pleasant in the slightest. The story is basically about how many sacrifices Asunta Spina will make for the love of her life, the butcher, how how much of her, you know, her face, her body, her life, her soul she'll give up for the man that she loves. And it's a very, very tragic story. Yeah, we don't we not necessarily spoil it, but uh, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't end well. Let's mm-hmm. let's let's say your jaw will drop. Your jaw will drop, and if you're you know, if you're anything like me, and and you're not you're not actually from 1915, there may be points where you get very very angry at the film indeed. The thing, uh, watching this film as well. Uh, by the way, yes, uh, the, the the angry, the toxic male of uh, of her boyfriend, the butcher. I think his name in some versions is Manja Fuoco, which means fire eater. <laughs> and in uh, in another, I think the version I watched, it was called something like Boca Fuoco, which is like you know, it's similar sort of mouth of fire, fire breather. I guess it would be. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, it's not exactly subtle in terms of how it's. Uh, putting those character types out there. They are very much, you know, the female sacrifice, the male anger and vengeance and and all this sort of stuff. It's what you do with it that counts. Yes, exactly. But this, exactly that, because though it sets up this, these characters as very... 
archetypal, if you like, uh, you know, where they, they have these sort of placeholder names, which tells you what they do as much as who they are. It, it also does have a sort of realism to it, that it's it, the melodrama is played out in quite a realistic fashion. Is, is, this, is this new for the, for the time? So it's really sort of this kind of tradition of pictorialism, really. Um, and that does sort of two things. It's one about the way that the, the, image looks the set so you can see you have the deep staging all the way back out to the streets out the back of the laundrette laundrette laundry obviously not a laundrette is it it's not eastenders <laughs> on, get with the uh, but you know and also beautiful beautiful um, images of the bay of naples and even i think it's like a canal the light twinkling so beautiful pictorialism in set design and that contributes to the style of acting you get which is sort of naturalistic up to a point. It's about creating these beautiful tableaus. So, um, so uh, Francesco Bertini as a center will strike the most elegant pro- pose of anguish. And she has this, um, it's very important to the film, she wears this shawl. And so you always pick her out, she has the longest shawl and she she does things with this shawl that are very eye-catching and help to form these, these elegant lines. So she wraps it tightly around herself or she sort of holds it out so she's taking more space in the frame. There is a naturalism to what she's doing because she's aiming this kind of performance at the camera rather than um, completely mimicking what her colleagues would have done on stage. But it's also, to us, it feels quite artificial. The thing that feels realistic, I think, in the film is the use of locations and something that would the neorealists would take and make into realism again which is the fixed camera and the long take which you have in every scene you know you have a long take of a fixed camera and you know it could be Anna Magnani in the ruins but it happens to be Francesca Bettini in the laundry but yeah it's so that's that's one of the reasons why I sort of think the neorealism thing is a bit cheeky in many ways because some of the some of the comparisons are sort of incidental and it isn't necessarily pushing against a different kind of filmmaking in the way that neorealism was, according to my understanding. Um, yeah. I, I mean, Anna Magnani would uh, go on to remake this film later on as well in the in, in the fifties, I think. Yeah. Um, but and also that that idea of the the diva, she is definitely one of those uh, figures uh, that that will have owe a lot to Francesca Petrini in 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 that sense. Um, it's hard about... to think of too many others, really, like like Anna Magnani, who have that kind of power where you think literally an Anna Magnani film is this sort of frame for her talent and for her ability to convey and express passion. So this is all coming from the Esther Nielsen model, and it's always so fascinating and completely, uh, most of the time, unfashionable these days. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um uh, talking about the location, so this is, this film is set in Naples, which is um, sort of it's it's not Rome, it's not the center of Italy, it's not the industrial north. It's it's at the time uh, still a very um, uh, a developing part of of Italy. I mean, let let's let's not use too many euphemisms. It's an extremely poor part of Italy. It's extre- extremely uh, um, backwards in the sense of it's not industrialized and and you know even right up until you know post second world war you will have a great deal of problems so and yet it's a very it's a very strikingly beautiful place and the film sort of contains both those realities it really does i mean um who was who was i reading i think it might be leah jacobs sort of suggesting that it's beautiful but of course if you're going to take a photograph of the bay of naples it 
it's pretty hard to make it anything other but the lighting is beautiful even in the interior scenes and there are these scenes of the back streets uh, where the sort of violence happens is just sort of I mean it might be a famous street I don't know but it's, it's an ordinary street and that sort of wide open staging of that that looks very neorealist it's also in the way they behave you know there's lots going on you know it, it the, the situations in this film are never that formal, even in the court, in the anteroom to the court particularly, there's a lot going on behind. When you see the courtroom shot, uh, the, the judges and so forth are at the back of the shot and the women who are reacting very emotionally to what's being said are at the foreground. And there's a wonderful scene really early on and you sort of feel like every Italian-American film ever since thought, I must have this in my Italian film, oh my, you know, uh, where... The uh, Santa and her fiance and her father all have dinner together and have a meal and they sit down to craft wine and meat and and I think um he's fe feeding her using his knife and they really like the food is clearly very important to them and they really get stuck into it. Not only that, I think they they get up from the table and they sort of carry on eating like yeah they no carry on and like it's definitely we're definitely showing that these are not formal upper class people these are quite relaxed working class people and and you know. I, well, I mean, there's a lot there's a lot going on in this idea of what makes a true Neapolitan, because this film is often called Neapolitan Blood. And the opening scene, you see the skyline and then you see the dissolve into a Santa Spina being there. And there's a suggestion that she embodies some kind of value of the city. Um, tough luck for Naples, if that is the case, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, going back to you know, Magnani and Mama Roma, these are these women who embody entire cities, entire regions of, of Italy. Are, um, yeah, yeah. It, it, and yet, and yet, with the food, I mean, um, food runs all the way through this. There's a there's a, a meal uh, which takes place uh, in the middle of the film, and where where we have the dance and the and, and the crime which Mangiafoco commits, the butcher commits. And you also have a meal towards the end of the film, which is is uh, wonderfully staged because she's prepared the food for for another man. Spoiler, uh, and and the the man who comes in, her 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 boyfriend who's been released from prison, thinks it's been prepared for him, and, and it's just he takes the plate off. She's put a plate on top of the other plate to keep the meat warm, and he takes it off and ah oh, okay, you've you've prepared me dinner. That, that how did you know I was coming? And it's just so many. Um, obviously, this being a silent film, all of this con is conveyed purely through us knowing as an audience that's what that that's what he's assuming, that's what he's thinking. I mean, it's really interesting if you think about the meals. If you just excise the meals from the whole film, because you have this meal with the father, which is very casual and friendly and almost homely, then you have the it's a picnic technically. The the well, it's called a picnic, isn't it? Where they go and they get in boats and they go and have this lovely meal for the birthday and there's dancing. And it's so formal. And what does it remind you of? It reminds you of a wedding. Absolutely. This is a meal and a party and the dancing and with the lovers together. Obviously, it does not end like a wedding should. And then you have this very marital scene of, you know, she's prepared dinner for her man who's come home. He's taken a while coming home. And she, as you say, she's prepared this meal for something else. So it's really like twisting what looks like, you know, the kind of asking for the hand of marriage, the wedding feast, and then the marital life. And it's, 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 yeah, it's really disturbing. Of course, it also shows uh, in the last scene how much her life is just work, work, work now. You know, ever since she enters the laundry, she's just sort of, uh, sort of doing excess of domestic labour. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, one thing that I was thinking while watching this is how Italian cinema, how Italian life 
seems to rhyme very easily with silent movies because of course um you know i, I don't want to be too stereotypical here but my italian friends and and having lived here for quite some time i do tend to gesture quite a lot and uh, there is a lot of non-verbal communication uh just automatically into you know we talk italian with our mouths and with our hands and and this is perfect for, for silent cinema absolutely i think that's why the diva tradition maybe or one of the reasons why it flourishes there as i say it's also this sort of um this idea of striking poses and this sort of half theatrical half cinematic kind of acting but that idea that um spoken italian and i hope i'm not saying anything out of turn here i spent two weeks in italy every year spoken italian sounds very emphatic and with those gestures that you're talking about it becomes more emphatic and so there is something about these actors being suited to this kind of high key story i mean because nothing about a Spina, much as we talk about the realism of what it's shot i mean the situation that they find themselves is is extreme it's like almost the most extremes of emotion you could possibly imagine if you're you know you're bleeding from the face while you're declaring your love for the man who's cut you you know and so i think um and this was a popular play so you know when you see the model of the diva film there's a reason why it flourished in Italy, and there's probably lots of reasons, and part of them may have been the way that they uh, treated their actresses, I don't know, you know, and had that kind of creative freedom, which went across silent cinema of this period internationally, but obviously these divas had a particular amount of creative control. What does um uh, and what does that power sort of translate into as as Francesca Petrini's career continues? Is she making a lot of these films? Is she um a, a central figure throughout this period? Yeah, she carries on. She makes a few films, and she makes a lot of films with a her trusted cameraman who is Sergio Leone's father, I think. Um, what she becomes is she becomes a sort of symbol of early silent cinema, and you know I don't think her career lasts that terribly long. I don't think she makes that many films, but she comes back, you know, um, Bertolucci casts her in Novacento and things like that. And then there was there was a lot of interest in her just before she died. There was a documentary made where she was, where you see her interviewed and she, you see her suddenly claiming credit because one of the things that, that, that lasts, obviously, is behind the scenes creative control. And one of the things that doesn't last is being star in front of it so much. And if you persuade someone not to get the credit on the back end of the film, yeah, the career it doesn't go it doesn't go quite so it doesn't go quite so uh quite as the way that you'd want it to. You know, we're not sitting around sort of discussing, oh, the great directors of the silent era, what about Bertini? Her name's not even on the film, you know? Even if it's to say, you know, an extraordinary performance or whatever on the intertitles. So I mean it's it's interesting how you can sort of elevate these women and also sort of make sure that they're put back into a certain section it's just i mean it's partly you know we have all these biases towards directors and against producers and towards writers and against actors and it's all nonsense it yeah. deserves to be constantly reassessed as yeah. uh, as we go as we go backwards and forwards through through cinema history um so so you have this um this film in 1915 and and what was its what was its uh, reception at the time was it a big was it a big hit was I'm it I'm pretty sure it was because the point of this is that it just solidified the the stardom of each diva I think this was an incredibly popular film I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that I mean please you know go and delete this if you check this but I'm pretty sure it was a huge hit it's one of those sort of staple films and it's been reshown and reshown and restored and it's it's sort of in the canon one of the things I thought it'd be interesting to talk to you about it is just that way of saying, so this is a famous film, but like, you know, it also helps us to look at film history in a slightly different way. It helps us to look at like, who are the creative people? And could it be that, you know, 
cinema about working class women was actually the most popular cinema for a medium whose audience was working class women. You know, when we go back with our director bias sometimes or our sort of grand movements bias or sort of this was an innovative turning point in cinema history bias, all of which are really interesting ways to look at cinema, absolutely. We sometimes forget, you know, that women who worked in laundries or women who spent a lot of time washing clothes went to see films quite a lot this time and, you know, going to like a Santa Spina. This is, this is a film, despite the fact that its sexual politics may not resonate with us today. Um, this is absolute sort of audience catnip in 1915. And even if you look at films that are coming out um, on the other side of the channel, you've got these um, sort of melodramas with strong leads and, you know, Aston Nielsen's definitely still pumping them out. <laughs> so, you know, it's 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 a mode. It's a mode. It's not just about this film being successful. It's about looking at what people really liked in silent cinema at the time, and it wasn't it wasn't perhaps all the things that we think they liked. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that this is kind of a, a suspense film as well. It has this these elements, and a lot of that suspense is articulated via or, or conditioned via those sort of technical limitations that you talked about at the beginning, like the the fixed camera, the long takes. You have to sort of build the suspense in camera, so to speak, rather than through editing or montage or parallel things like uh, parallel narratives, like uh, Griffiths would do uh, at a certain point. But you know, bear in mind that you can do that. You can do that. You can move the camera and you can do parallel editing and people would know about that. And you can, you can 100% do that. This is choosing this pictorial style over that. It's a style that seems associated with a certain kind of adult sophisticated melodrama, with a certain kind of um, theatrical narrative. It's a style that's associated with showcasing a great performance. So, I mean, they you know, they could move those cameras. I mean, it wasn't as easy as it would be now, but, and they could absolutely cross edit. I think one of the interesting things about this film is if you described it, oh, it's fixed camera, it's long takes, there's slightly gestural acting. Um, it's everything that puts people off about watching silent cinema. And yet these films can actually sort of get you hooked on silent cinema in their own way, because if you do watch them on the big screen, particularly, oh my God, please, uh, you know, it's incredibly mesmerizing and that's the entire point of that's the entire point of Francesco Bertini and her ilk but yeah I, I was thinking about the big screen because obviously I well not necessarily obviously but unfortunately I wasn't watching it on the big screen but I was thinking about how that depth would appear on the big screen that you know when the people are outside the laundrette you at laundry the laundry room uh, or the, the you know the, the the long street which is in the background and people seem to be turning a corner as they come Ooh. to past the windows that would be that would be so much more impactful in the in the in the on the big screen so i saw it on the big screen i think about five years ago mm-hmm. uh four and a half we're doing at Pordenone. Um, and yes, it is re- remarkable. And also trying to get yourself into that mindset of 1915. And there's two things. And one is that, you know, we're beginning to get these longer length films. So it's about like, like it's about five real films, and it's an hour and a quarter or something like that. Mm. And so you know, sitting down, this is going to be a story that's going to engross me. This is a story that's going to give me character development and, as as we know, plot twists. So there's a sense it's like sitting down to watch a three-hour film now, you know, thinking, well, you know, it's going to be massive. You know, if you've heard that the budget was four hundred million or whatever, you know, this is that kind of film in people's mindset. But also all those backgrounds, the staging might seem theatrical. But to see the light on the Bay of Naples, that's what's sort of magical. You know, you're seeing something that you can't see at the theatre. You can only see this in this particular kind of film. And so it's got a very specific appeal in 1915. And 
as I say, it, it might seem in conception quite old fashioned, but I think actually these things can kind of really resonate uh, even now. I don't know. I don't know if you're like choosing whether these films get in and out of your Italian canon, but I hope it gets in. Oh, no. Well, I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not particularly uh, interested in developing, well, maybe developing my own canon. Certainly my letterboxed watch list will be, uh, you know, I'll produce one of those to go with the podcast. And that's definitely going to be the first film there. So, you know, it's got pride of place. I mean, you know, I wish that I would say that it would be fun to watch this on some beautiful Blu-ray or go to screenings. But I'm aware when I chose it, I was like, it is on YouTube. It's not a great version, you know, obviously it could look a lot more beautiful, but the version that you can find on YouTube does give you a sense of the staging and, of course, of the original tints and tones that you can have. So the, the, the film is coloured beautifully. So I I thought, you know, if somebody doesn't know anything about Italian silent cinema, hopefully this will sort of impress them, maybe is what I'm thinking, or just, you know, surprise them a little. And maybe people will write in angrily after they've read this podcast, listen to this podcast and say, how could you possibly condone this film with its retrogressive attitudes towards domestic violence? But I'll just have to change my name. <laughs> but I mean, let's, I mean, we can talk about that as well uh, in terms of the domestic violence, as you say, this is a act of jealousy by the main character and sort of unjustified. It, it, but even saying that sounds wrong because there's no justification for this sort of violence at all he attacks her cuts her face although the 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 level of how explicit this is is um obviously not not it's not particularly explicit but but the action is is shocking and she defends her man and now i would i would offer as a you know obviously putting it into a modern day context putting it into any context in terms of human rights this is this is not behavior that that you, that you want to endorse or in any way even apologize for that said the naples of the day and even to some extent the naples of today the idea of the state intervening in your private life would be considered um a, 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 an intrusion and so the idea that you would you would let the law do something to your guy, even if your guy had done something terrible to you, would be would be something that you you know. There's a different relationship between the state and the people because Naples, for many many years, was ruled by by foreign um, by foreign soldiers, and so so I would I would offer that slightly as as a piece of historical context and but you have to say that um, that Italy is a, a very I would argue it's a sort of matriarchal society, N- not in the sense that it's um, in any way some sort of feminist uh, paradise, but it's it's women running a patriarchy. And so in this film, this film kind of perfectly reflects that in a sense, because the woman has the power in the sense that she could send him to jail forever if she wants to, mm. but she she uses that power actually to to reinforce the male and and to and to underwrite everything he does, even though he's done it to her. Yeah. How does that sound? I, I'm, I'm sorry. I sound. I've just realised that I've mansplained for five minutes, and that's not. Uh, that's well, not... you know, I've been to Naples once and right. bought some truffle, 
We went into a shop, we bought some truffle and then we drove out again. So I don't know much about Naples. So you didn't mansplain at all because I don't know. I think it's interesting what you say, actually, the idea that state intervention is bad because in a way the in the film, the idea that he will be jealous and the idea that that jealousy might find some violent expression, it's almost con- like that's the fact. That's just a fact that will happen if you're like, that. that's what a man might do. A, a man, not all men, I'm not suggesting this film says that, but what a man might do. The, tra- the terrible thing that happens to her really is that he goes to prison because she loves him and she doesn't want him to go to prison and of course when he goes to prison sorry sorry listeners something even worse happens uh to her you know and so and again you know the mother has that same thing where she sort of blames her blames the the center for, for the fact that her son's gone to prison and you know it is this idea that you know that is the thing that's the really bad thing that's happened you know um perhaps she shouldn't have you know, smiles at the guy, perhaps this shouldn't have happened, maybe he, definitely he should have behaved in a better way, but you know the the tragedy is that he's gone to prison so what you saying that, that there's a sort of aversion to state intervention sort of makes sense of the plot and of the plot of a film from a, a play from 1909, I think about Naples, I mean gosh, it's more than 100 years ago. It's interesting to me that they use this framework, they're trying to find a framework to to show her character just making sacrifice after sacrifice, proving the strength of her love. And so the idea, I think, in a way, in a way that might be difficult to appreciate in 2023 is that, you know, this is in, in a way a romantic film because it's about a film who loves her man no matter what. Now, we could all quibble with that, but, you know, you have to sort of understand where the film's coming from. You might choose not to watch it, but, you know, this is what they're trying to say. And I think your idea about state intervention seems to completely, completely make sense. Um, apologies to anyone I'm saying stupid things about Naples, too. I'm sure it's very nice. I say, lovely truffle I bought, that my friend bought. <laughs> <laughs> the best, the best pizza I've ever eaten, I ate in Naples. Uh, kind of unsurprisingly, but I, I didn't eat pizza for like a month after I ate that pizza because any other pizza just was would have been an insult. I wanted to retain the memory. You know? It was uh, staying at a, a village nearby. It was on top of a mountain, and so we thought, oh, we'll go back down into Naples later. But then we got snowed in on top of what? a mountain in a in it was December. But yeah, so quite an unusual experience of that region that we had terrible snow and we couldn't go anywhere. So we were stranded. So, you know, um, you know, I'm ready to explore Naples. Uh, I assume that it looks beautiful in the sunlight because it did in 1915. So I'm hoping it still does. Absolutely. Oh, no, absolutely does. And it, it is a beautiful city. It's, it's very much the Wild West of, of Italy. It's very much still got that reputation. It's still got the feeling of you know liverpool in the 80s it's a dock city oh, so... great then perfect yeah yeah it's kind of right it's a... at home yeah very very uh very very strong culture very strong cultural and regional identity people who i mean uh obviously one of the most famous exports from naples in recent years has been the gomorra um tv series and film and the book by roberto saviano it, obviously as well very much uh influenced by uh the 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 camorra the 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 neapolitan um mafia the, and and you know the and those landmarks that we talked about the bay and and everything i was actually i wanted to ask you about that because in in a sense that sort of shot or the shot there's a shot of them getting into a boat and it's quite a, a, a little bit longer shot than you would maybe expect in a film today and it it, it sort of struck me as is this because for this period like people getting into a boat in a real place is like the special effect that that cinema is giving you which 
uh, theatre won't be giving you, as you as you sort of said earlier. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, you know, we think of like, you know, in the early, early period, you know, he wants to see some beautiful actualities of Venice and Naples and so on. You know, there are those films, the Lumiere films, or they're sort of operators around the world and, and their rivals. But yeah, I mean, that, that would be a thing to see. And, you know, there's no... There's no, I mean, gosh, can you imagine even now if someone said, here's my film, it's set in Venice or Naples, and you don't get to see the beautiful water. You would hate it, but definitely then that would be a major attraction. The scene where the two lovers are looking out across the bay, and that's when we introduce the third man. And it's like he's, he's sort of catching up with them. It's like this sort of ridiculous shot in the way. He sort of walks across the foreground. And I just was looking at it and thinking, this is because they have this beautiful shot and they want to have this beautiful image and they don't want to change it to have to, to get this guy in in any more sort of um, subtle way. So we just have him walk across the front of the scene and so we can carry on seeing this absolutely gorgeous shot of the lovers looking out to the water. And yeah, when they're on the boat, that moment where they're just so in love is, is really wonderful. I just wanted to pick up on what you said about Liverpool in the 80s because finally found something I know about. Um, when we were talking about sort of the strong female characters and that, it did remind me of, you know, I did some work on some um, British working class films of the 80s and the sort of Scouse heroines. And I'm just like, gosh, wouldn't you love to have seen, you know, Margie Clark or Judy Walters taking this on? Uh, very much it's like Letter to Brezhnev, it's day. <laughs> So exciting. So exciting to have found a new parallel. I didn't I did not know that about Naples being like Liverpool, but um I'll take it. I mean the football was good, right? Oh the football's amazing. We're, the the Naples are winning the, the Italian championship and you know they'd had Maradona uh, found yes. his home in Naples and, and uh, the Asif Kapadia documentary about the life of Mar- Maradona very, very specifically concentrates on that. And what's interesting about that documentary is the the amount of racism the amount of internal racism. Italy is one of the few countries where you can be racist without leaving the country because the northerners are very racist against the southerners and the Neapolitans um, have this, you know, uh, are denigrated by many people in the north, many people to, to this day. Uh, so there is a... Um, that All of that sort of stuff mixes in throughout. Uh, and, and, and in a sense... This film encapsulates some of those prejudices in the, you know, the the, the violent butcher mm. is is a stock character, and the, and the idea of you know st- stabbing people for for love is is a sort of cavaliere rusticana, you know, the 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 idea of sort of codes of honor and and it, it it's very recognizable um, in a way that maybe somewhere like Milan it would be considered to over the top or too overly emotional and all those codes of honor you know i'm just talking generally about codes of honor generally always seem to march neatly alongside the sexual double standard which is very much at the heart of uh, at least one aspect of the plot here you know that's quite interesting to me i mean this is the problem with only going to two places in italy uh, ever and never going anywhere else um, that i need to experience the south a bit more but i i yeah, this is definitely considered to be a Neapolitan film. And I think that the appeal of that, the appeal of that was for, I mean, audiences all around the world, the idea that you would see this true woman of Naples acting as passionately as women of Naples do. And that sounds quite naff, I understand, but that's definitely how um, films about Liverpudlian women have always been marketed as well. So maybe I've got more in common with this film than I thought. Gosh. There you go. There you go. I need to get a shawl. 
<laughs> and, and, and learn the vocabulary of the shawl because yeah. each of those gestures seems to have a very specific meaning yeah and i don't want anyone listening to this to think that the shawl isn't super important the way she wears it it marks her out as the star of this film this this passionate and and very uh sort of tragic figure from the get-go and it's beautiful it's absolutely beautiful shawl work and if you don't believe that you could be impressed by a shawl then uh you have to try and watch this film i mean you know set in a laundry then the their textiles. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing that I found uh, interesting about the film is uh, obviously, you know, you have this center female star, this center, uh, this, this central character who's really, really all our attention is focused on. And there's this idea of her beauty because she's being sought after by these, these different guys. But she's also not glamorous, you know. She's uh, her hair is a bit of a mess. I mean, I don't want to. Yeah, yeah. This is this is an audio podcast, so nobody needs to see my uh, my my unkempt look. I have just for the record, I have one hair out of place, and uh, exactly. I haven't touched up my makeup for at least ten minutes. So uh, yeah, that's that's what that is. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there's, she has this beautiful dark eyes and this little cloud of hair tied, sort of the back so it sort of frames her face beautifully and if you look at uh, sort of beauty portraits or glamour postcard images of this actress you'll see more detail of her face and how gorgeous she looked and that sort of dark eyes and hair is really part of that you know even when she is working in the laundry even when she's not exactly you know at a party like at the, she looks quite glamorous and that's sort of not glamorous but she looks beautiful and there's a sort mm. of um a sort of rustic poetry in the way she looks towards the end of the film where she's really looking less glamorous definitely she still looks quite beautiful and of course the idea that this woman has officially lost her looks we don't see it because we can't see something as gruesome as her scar, but also we don't see it because we see the truest and spina. We see that she's a woman with love in her heart, and it's all these men around her who either objectify her or see her as some kind of fallen woman who mistakenly think that she has lost her her purity. And we know we know that she's still a woman in love, and that's the sort of I mean that's really important to the film. As I say, it might sound very old fashioned, but it's I think it's very important to how you're meant to see the character. Oh, absolutely! And you look—you can't—you can't look at a film of 1915 and and uh, and and expect it to conform to uh, 2023 um, standards of behaviour and or beauty. Yeah, I mean, and anyways, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to pick this film because I think it absolutely holds up, and I'd highly recommend anyone to watch it. You know, uh, a particularly young person, but I. Uh, <laughs> but it isn't that isn't that film that I'm just saying saying pick this because it fits into this and it's so modern and it's and it tells you everything about how they were doing crazy things with cameras and look at this great director and all the sort of normal ways in I think um you have to appreciate that if you watch a lot of Italian silent cinema you have a lot of pictorial photography lots of natural landscapes lots of deeply passionate narratives that might seem not in this case but might sometimes seem overwrought and uh but that can be very very appealing and I am um, I I want to go back to Pordenoni already, but it's not till October. Ah, damn it! Well, I'm definitely going to try and make an effort this year to to come at least for the weekend and uh, see some films, and and maybe we can uh, maybe we can taste some what Pordenoni. What sort of food do we have in Pordenoni? Sort of. Well, it, in October in Pordenoni, there's a lot of um sort of like pumpkin gnocchi and things like mm, that. I think. Yeah, it is this, the season of the pumpkin. Uh, I'm not. I'm a non meat eater, but. I know that they have, they definitely have that. There's a lot of that. But it's uh, they treat you well in Portland. It's a very nice town. And the coffee's great. 
So yeah, Excellent. come to Podnoni and watch some crazy films. Uh, you can definitely do a weekend, but you'll never be the same again. Excellent, excellent. That's a, that's a promise or a threat. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. Um, uh, final question then, Pamela. Um, given my, you know, my my self-confessed stated ignorance, what other Italian silent movies do, would you recommend? And I'll I'll put pop a couple on the uh, uh, on the letterboxed watch list. Well, I do think you know. I'm not going to disc Iberia. Go and see it. Go and like watch that on the biggest screen you possibly can and enjoy the vast size of that. Um, Oh, I need to think about this. You know, uh, there's a director called Augusto Janina who made some films which I think might be a really interesting follow-on to Asunta Spina. He had these sort of gamin heroines, so there's an awful lot of... So it's a slightly different type of female lead, something that feels more modern in 1920s. They were made in the 1920s often. But yeah, he he sort of modernised it a little bit and I'd recommend looking at a few of his films or his gone out of fashion um for his um politics so um forgive me for sending you to a bad person but yeah there's a film called the fawn as well which is a sort of magic realist film and my god i've sort of i feel like i should know so many and i always mm. feel self-conscious about about it but um yeah I, those are some good places to start and I will, maybe I'll send you a couple more recommendations well I, I asked you for a couple you could just say look I, I could tell you millions obviously I've got a whole <laughs> list here but here's two to be going along with come back when you finish them if anyone from Gordon only hears this I'll, I'll just be torn, torn them from them but that's fine I'll go down watching some of them don't worry, nobody is going to hear this <laughs> this is my podcast, nobody hears this I could have been twice as scouse if I'd have known that, I didn't know but if you did, then I would. And oh, then, no, where then. would we be? As soon as we get, as soon as I step into a taxi in Liverpool, it's like you take me to the everyman lap. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, if you your pronunciation of the Italian might have suffered, and we were really relying on that one in this case. So. Absolutely, absolutely. Listen, Pamela, thank you so much for uh, for your expertise and for and for your recommendation of Assunta Spina from 1915, starring Francesca Bertini. And uh, and and I'm looking forward to to watching some some more. Uh, thank you so much. All right, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ciao. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm uh, Italian. Uh, I totally <laughs> do. <laughs> Thanks so much to my guest Pamela Hutchinson and music by Two Minute Rules, available from Bandcamp. Laboratory. Arrivederci ragazzi, ci vediamo in un prossimo film. Lo speriamo.